My guess is that you're at an intersection. My guess is that you're trying to figure something out. Maybe there's a, a question that relates to a big business deal. You're going to be in a, in a meeting this week in a boardroom. Maybe it's something that has to do about your future, a decision that you have to make about family life, about a relationship. Maybe it's a, a intersection where forgiveness and, and hurt are kind of rolling around. But my, my guess is that you're at an intersection. There is an intersection in all of our lives. It's the intersection of courage and discouragement. Courage is always based on knowing who you belong to and who you are following. Discouragement is always based on doubt and fear swirling around you and and beating you down. When you get to that intersection, you will need a survival kit for the rest of the journey. The survival kit looks like this. An abiding knowledge of God's word. Abiding knowledge. A strategic plan of what's next. And there are always two parts to what's next. A resolute commitment. Resolute commitment to the big we. And there's a fourth thing that is the most important of all. I'm beginning at Joshua 1, reading verses 1 through 10 and 16 through 18. This is a, a prequel to Eric's get your feet wet message from a few weeks ago, where he asked that intriguing question, what's your Jordan? And I've been thinking about his message and, and what's my Jordan ever since he spoke that question. This gets us back to the the set up to where they were as they were at the the edge of the the Jordan River. This is where they were before they were going to make that move. Something is about to happen and what happens and how we unpack this is going to give us the survival kit that we need when we are at the intersection of courage and or discouragement. Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. These words will be Repeated, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and, and now we're going to go up a notch. Be strong and very courageous. Like there's another level of courage to go to. 
be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then, then you will be successful, prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people. Go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God has given you for your own. Then they answered Joshua, whatever you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you command them will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. There's an intersection in all of our lives. It's the intersection of courage and discouragement. Courage is always based on knowing who you belong to and who you're following. Discouragement is based on doubt and fear swirling around you and beating you down, trying to beat you down. When you get to that intersection, you will need a survival kit for the rest of the journey. Let me detail your survival kit. The first thing you will need is an abiding knowledge of God's word. The key word there is abiding. Verse 8. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. There is a theme in the Bible about abiding in God's word. Knowing God's word to the point where it just flows through you. It's in the very fabric of your being. When you think, you're thinking the way God would think. When, you're at, when you act, you're acting in a way that he would act. This does not mean just being in a room where the Bible is talked about. This does not mean taking a class where you go line by line through a New Testament book. This does not mean being part of a, a life group. While all those things are good in and of themselves, the Bible says you always have to take it to the next level. You always have to know the book and understand it so that it's just lived out moment by moment every single day. You know, the, the NFL season is just underway, and, and a lot of you are excited about it. Football's back. You get to watch the games this afternoon and, and see, and, 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 you know, the Super Bowl is just not really that far away. A few months from now, they'll be playing the Super Bowl. It's all exciting. But during training camp and during the preseason, these players had to, had to memorize a playbook that was like this thick. They had to get it into the very fabric of their being so that when a play gets called, it just happens. They just know we're at the line of scrimmage if, if a play is going to get changed. Omaha! You know, if you're going to do something like that, you know, that, that's going to change. You, gotta, you just got to know it. If we expect that of NFL players 
Do you not think God expects the same thing of us when we're playing a much bigger game? It's not even a game, it's life. It's the reality of living at the intersection of courage or discouragement. Let me show you how this theme works. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 17 with me. This is a passage that's about having a king. It says, when you enter the land the Lord your God has given you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. Now they're at this point. This is Deuteronomy. Now they're at this point where Joshua is going to take them in. And then it says this. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of the law. He has to write his own playbook. He has to write it himself. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. It's saying that when you understand what this book is about, it creates within you a humility. You are a leader, but you're not better than anybody else. You are a servant to everybody else. It says it's going to keep you going on the straight and narrow path toward the kingdom of God, toward what God wants in you and through you. This is a theme that runs all over the Bible. When Jesus talked about he is the vine and we are the branches, it's the same kind of theme Let me take you to Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. So what do you do to get God's word into your life to the point where it just, it flows through you when you think you think the way that God would want you to think. When you, when you move to do something, when you move into a situation at work, on your job, with whatever responsibility level you have, that somehow it's just like God is doing something there in your life that's touching other people's lives. It's, it's, a, it's a huge question. It's a question that, that takes us right to that intersection of courage and discouragement. I remember a time when I was discouraged. Take you back to the, to the early to mid-70s. I was working in a Christian ministry. I was working in East Harlem, New York, with kids on the street. And, uh, and I was getting them involved in Bible studies. I was coaching a basketball team every Saturday morning, get the, get the team on a subway, and we'd go somewhere in New York City to play a, a basketball game in, a, in an obscure gymnasium. Uh, and so here I am with responsibility for teenagers, responsibility to, to teach the Bible. And my Bible was like 
sitting there in my apartment with a two-ton boulder sitting on it. I couldn't get it open. I was just, I don't know what, what it was. I was discouraged. I was beside myself. I wasn't sure, you know, how I got here. And, and there, were, there were kinds of doubts that were trying to beat me down, fears that were swirling around. And I finally reached out to a good friend of mine. And I said, I said Rick, this is where I am. And I, I just don't know how I got here, but I know there's like a two-ton boulder sitting on my Bible over there, and I can't seem to get it open. He said, you have to start reading it. You have to get back to reading it. You have to do that now. You just have to do that. And I don't know what strength got into me except that it was God allowing me to do something that seemed to be too hard for me to do myself. He was doing it through me. And I pushed that two-ton boulder off my Bible and I started to, to read it. And it was just like, have you ever been really thirsty and, and all of a sudden you get some really cold water and it just makes you feel so much better? And I started to feel so much better just letting God's words come into my life. I went back to reading the Gospel of John, which was the, the first book of the Bible that I ever read from, from beginning to end. And the stories about Jesus and what Jesus said just filled me up and filled me up. And suddenly I was again living the life of the vine and the branches. This is what it means. You've got to get to a point where you let God's word define you and you let God's word motivate you. It's not just another book. It's not just like reading the newspaper. It's not just like picking up a New York Times bestseller. It's God's life. It says in, in 1 Timothy, all scripture is God breathed. It's God's very life that he wants to take and, and use inside of you to change things and to move you. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. It gives you the foundation to have the kind of life that God wants to give you. The first survival kit component is an abiding knowledge of God's word. Where are you? It's a challenging question. Where are you with an abiding knowledge of God's word today? The second part of the survival kit that you need at the intersection of courage and discouragement is a strategic plan of what's next. A strategic plan of what's next Go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land. The Lord your God is giving you for your own. There are always two parts to the strategic plan of what's next. There is the what and there is the who. The what and the who. Let me tell you about the what. The what says, go, get, cross, take. Go through the camp. Get your provisions. Cross the Jordan. Take possession of the land. Go get cross take. That's the strategic plan in the what sense of the plan. But there's a who sense of the plan. And the who points to who you are in terms of how God has gifted you to use you. Once you get the what done, there's got to be a you who makes it all come together. I came across a great story about the, the who, which is you, sounds like uh, Dr. Seuss right now, but the who that is you 
in a book called Divine Direction, Seven Decisions That Will Change Your Life by Craig Groeschel. Good little book, simple book, easy to read, packs a punch. If you have the time to, to grab it and read it through, I, I would highly recommend it. But he tells this story that I thought was very clever. So now I invite you to make another decision that could alter your story for the better. Instead of sometimes, instead of just sometimes doing good things in God's name to help other people, consider making a radical shift in thinking. Radical shift in thinking. Rather than seeing service as something you occasionally do, what if you saw yourself as a servant? It's not what you do, it's who you are. That's why I try to remind myself that we don't go to church, we are the church. We don't go to church, we are the church. And since we are the church, God wants to use us to serve him. He wants us to use our gifts to strengthen his body. God's word offers several lists of different spiritual gifts that God gives to people. One of my favorites is in Romans 12. Paul tells the Roman Christians, in his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. Romans 12, 6. When you think about it, surely there are certain things that just come nat naturally come easy to you. You're wired to do things that other people can't do, and they often admire that you can do those things. And then this is fun. This is where he tells this very, very clever story that somebody once told him. Imagine you're at a table in a restaurant with your close friends, about to share some delicious dessert. It's a cherry pie. You see one of your friends is about to stick their fork into their piece of cherry pie. As the fork descends toward the dessert, you notice that the plate is dangerously close to the edge of the table. Before you have time to warn them, they push their fork into the pie and it plops into their lap. What you do next might be a clue to your gift. It's a clue to your who. Do you jump up and offer help? Do you grab a napkin and rush to do whatever you can to clean up the mess? If so, you probably have the spiritual gift of serving. Do you look at the poor victim and offer wise advice? You know there's really a better way to eat pie. First, you should always keep it half an arm's length from the edge of the table. If you're inclined to lead a Bible study on the subject, you might say, you know, this incident reminds me of when Jesus gathered with his disciples at a table. In fact, I discovered that the Greek word for table is, if you find yourself offering instructions, you likely have the gift of teaching. If you slap your leg, laugh out loud, and exclaim that you've done far dumber things because you want to make your friend feel better about what happened, you probably have the gift of encouragement. If you offer to buy your friend another piece of pie and then offer to, to buy dessert to everyone else at the table, you can be pretty sure you have the gift of giving. If you start organizing a crew, getting everyone else to follow your detailed instructions to clean things up, you have the gift of leadership. And here it is. And if you look on and say, wow, I can't believe you didn't notice how close your place was to the edge of the table. You should have seen that coming. Chances are that you have the gift of prophecy. <laughs> it's a great little story that, that just illustrates there's a who in the strategic plan. Once you have the what, go, get, cross, take, you've got to get to the who of what part of the strategic plan are you going to be handling? And, and one of the things that we're going to be talking about on Thursday night is the strategic plan, the go, get, cross, whatever, you know, all the, all the details. We don't have a future. Nobody has a future 
without a strategic plan. But who you are in the future is even bigger, I think, than the plan. Because you could have a plan sit on a table all day long. But it has to be executed. There has to be energy in it. There's got to be vision in it and faith in it and all these things that relate to a legacy. And so we're going to talk about the strategic plan of what's next on Thursday. There's always a what, but there's also a who. The third part of the survival kit. First, you have an abiding knowledge of God's word. Second, you have the strategic plan of what's next. Then you have an unshakable commitment to the big we. An unshakable commitment to the big we. Allow me to explain. Then they answered Joshua. Whatever you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Marriage is always a we. Teams are always a we. Church is always a we. You know, let me, let me digress for a moment and tell you about how marriage is a we. I did a wedding yesterday and something happened yesterday in the wedding that happens all the time. If you ask any pastor who does weddings, ask them this. Try me, test me on this. Say, when the, it comes a time for the groom or the husband-to-be to put the ring on his wife's left hand, what usually happens? And they will smile and chuckle maybe, and they'll say, oh, I, I know what happens. He never gets it right. It always goes to the knuckle, and it gets stuck. And, and he sort of pushes, and she starts to smile, and then she starts to, like, fall backwards. And, and it's, just, it's this whole deal that happens. And it happens, like, all the time, and it happened yesterday. It gets there, and it gets stuck. And, and I don't know what he's thinking at that point. Maybe he's thinking, am I really here? Am I really doing this? You know, what is, how did I get here? What's going on? You know, I was supposed to, I thought I was supposed to watch the game. You know, it's like, he, he's just thinking like, like this. And the woman at that point, and this happens, ask, ask the pastor, what the woman does, she takes the ring, she jams it on her finger. <laughs> it's on. It's done. <laughs> Stick a fork in it. It's over. Okay? So, so, uh, so it's got to be a we. Now, if the ring doesn't get on, let's say the ring doesn't get on, does that mean there isn't a we? No, there's a we. We're, we've talked about the we. We've given challenge about the we. You know, I've prayed over, over them together. There's a we. This is only a symbol of what God is doing and what God has done. But nothing happens without an unshakable commitment to the we. Church is an unshakable commitment to the we. Let me take you to Acts chapter 4 where we see this. And it's one of the most famous, amazing, brief passages in the New Testament because the church is about to begin. The church is about really to be born. The whole congregation of believers was united as one, one heart, one mind. They didn't even claim ownership of their own possessions. No one said, that's mine, you can't have it. They shared everything. The apostles gave powerful witness to the resurrection of the master Jesus, and grace was on all of them. And so it turned out 
that not a person among them was needy. No one was needy. Nobody was missing anything because in this new community of faith and life together, they were an unshakable we. Those who owned fields or houses sold them and brought the price of the sale to the apostles and made an offering of it. The apostles then distributed it according to each person's need. Joseph, called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of comfort, a Levite born in Cyprus, sold a field that he owned, brought the money and made an offering of it to the apostles. The big we always says we will do, we will go, we will obey. It's translated into a statement that began the life of this church when this church was, was being born, when it was beginning to take its first breaths. There was a phrase that guided us through those, those early intersections of courage and discouragement. It was whatever it takes. What's that going to take? Whatever it takes, we will do that. What's that going to take? Whatever it takes, we're going to get that done. How much is that? Whatever it takes, we will figure out a way to, to go there, to acquire that, to make that happen. This unshakable we changes all of us because it's, it's, it is all of us. It's this commitment that if it happens, it happens for all of us. If it's going to be there, it's for all of us. It's not everybody thinking what is right in, in their own minds. It's not personal agendas. It's not, hey, what's in it for me? It's the we that accomplishes God's will in his way on earth as it is in heaven. This is huge in the survival kit. But now we're at the fourth component and the fourth component to your survival kit is the most important component of all. Without it, the journey is easily compromised by ego and misinterpretation of reality. And that's what Jesus ran into in the first century. Ego and misinterpretation of reality. They, they knew what the law was. They, they, they got together. They acted as if they were a we. Uh, they understood that the, there would have to be courage to do things, but they, they were missing something. And you can't miss this or you're never going to get past the intersection. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Germany, he participated in an assassination attempt on Adolf, on Adolf Hitler. He just struggled to understand how, how faith and life would really always come together. And he put some things together in, in, in beautiful fashion with the way he, he wrote some ideas. And this is one that just blows me away. He says, who is pure of heart? Only those who have surrendered their hearts completely to Jesus that he may reign in them alone. It's, it's Jesus's agenda. It's what he is wanting to do in you and through you. Nobody else. Only those whose hearts are undefiled by their own evil, which is what you would expect. It's like you don't want to get caught up in your own bad stuff that will keep you from being what Jesus wants you to be. But this is what you didn't expect. And by their own virtues too. And by their own virtues too. 
tangled up in their own virtues, which is exactly what Jesus ran into in the first century. People who thought they were great, thought they were wonderful, thought they were living out the precepts of God in everyday life, but it was ego-driven. It was misinterpretation of reality. So nothing really happens unless this one thing happens first, above and beyond all other things. God must define the moment. The moment has to be defined by God. It has to be him speaking his, his will into it. It has to be him speaking his life into it. It has to be him speaking his direction into it. It has to be God bringing the motivation for it. Everything else can easily be compromised by ego and misinterpretation of reality. But when God is in it, then you're going to get past this intersection and there's going to be courage in your back pocket. There's going to be courage in your backpack. You're going to have courage for the journey that is coming when God defines it. And here's how he defined it. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. God defined that moment. We don't have Moses anymore. No more Moses. Done. So here we go. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. And then it says, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. God defines the moment and that changes the moment. That changes everything. God must define the moment of our lives. If we go on Thursday to this event and, and I define the moment, run for the hills. If we go to the event on Thursday and you define the moment, who knows what that could turn out to be. We have to know that God defines it. And I know he is defining it. I've seen moments defined by God for 24 years. And I've seen moments when all of a sudden God brought everything together to declare this is the future. This is the way we're going. And all of his fingerprints are on Thursday night. All of his fingerprints are on Thursday night. And so I struggled with this word courage for the last few days. I was trying to, to come up with an acrostic that would, would really work. And finally, I hit on one this morning that I think works. And I challenge you to figure out one for yourself. But this one works for me. God is calling you to unlimited radical, amazing grace experience. And that's what courage is. God calling you. He defines the moment. And he calls you to unlimited, radical, amazing grace experiences. That's courage. As you abide in his word, as you understand the unshakable we, there's an intersection in all of our lives. And maybe you're there this morning. And it's courage and discouragement and there you are. And courage will always be based on who you belong to and who you're following. And discouragement is going to try to beat you down and swirl you around so that you go nowhere. When you get to that intersection, you need a survival kit for the rest of the journey. But before you take one more step, always let God define the rest of the journey. Because that's who you belong to. And that's who you are following. That's who we are following together. So let me ask you the courageous questions. First, what is God defining right now? 
What is God defining right now? He's defining a future. He's defining a way to get to the future. He's defining not just the what, but the who. And I'll talk to you more about that Thursday, and I'll talk to you more about that next week when we do legacy faith. What is God defining right now? How does God's word get into your heart and mind? And this is maybe one of the big questions of, of this morning, because if God's going to define the moment, he's going to define it according to what he's already written down. So how do you have that in the fabric of your being? That's a very challenging question for each and every one of us. What is the strategic plan? There are steps along the way. Is our commitment to ourselves unshakable? Is our commitment to ourselves unshakable? Because if we don't do this together, it just doesn't get done. Just like in the early church, there was no need because they did it together. So what's a legacy? We talked about it last, last Sunday. Legacy is planting seeds in a garden you will never see. And sometimes, sometimes that garden is called courage. Dear Heavenly Father, allow us to have the courage to hear your voice calling us into unlimited, radical, amazing grace experiences. Allow, allow us to have the humility to know that it's not about me, but it's about an unshakable commitment to we. Heavenly Father, allow us to, to find out the, the who that needs to be a part of the strategic plan. Um, Father, allow the very fabric of our being to be knit by your hands so that your word in us creates your will through us. We give you our lives again today with deep love and devotion. In Jesus' name, amen.